Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Shannon Weston, who is a professor in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at my former institution, uh, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, it's always great to speak to Shannon. I always learn so, so much uh, in speaking with Shannon. And today we're going to talk about the, the NOW uh, trial, neoadjuvant olaparib window trial in newly diagnosed BRCA mutant ovarian cancer. Shannon, thank you so, so much for accepting our invitation. I know you're super busy. You're recording from the ASCO meeting in Chicago. So thank you for your time. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I always love being on this podcast. <laughs> well, great. Well, Shannon, um, let's, uh, and, and we were just saying, obviously, lots of questions that uh, we want to cover, uh, such an important study, but I wanted to just briefly start, uh, if you could provide an overview of the use of uh, PARP inhibitors in the setting of advanced ovarian cancer, and it's using the neoadjuvant setting in particular. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So I know that you have a very savvy audience and they've all been using PARP inhibitors for some time, but I think, you know, the bottom line is the earlier, the better seems to be the theme in regards to the best outcomes that we can get for our patients utilizing PARP inhibitors and hopefully the best impact on survival. Um, so of course, we used to use it in the treatment setting for patients that had a biomarker, but that is no longer an option. And so now we're really sticking to maintenance and preferably frontline maintenance. So after the completion of chemotherapy, when the patient has a benefit, they can then be started on a PARP inhibitor. Um, and you, know, of course, the best benefit is for those patients that have uh, some type of biomarker, whether that be a BRCA mutation or a mutation in other more rare um, rare genes like RAD51D, RAD51C, um, or in the absence of mutation, using it in somebody that has a homologous recombination deficient test positive tumor also seems to get us at the very minimum progression-free survival benefit, but potentially overall survival benefit as well. You know, and just like any drug development, as we use something and it works, we want to move it earlier and earlier. And so we were really intrigued about the idea of potentially putting PARP into the neoadjuvant setting, could we get rid of chemotherapy as a whole? Um, and will we see better impact because perhaps the tumor hasn't had the opportunity to develop resistance mechanisms? And so would we see a more pure benefit for utilizing PARP in the neoadjuvant setting? And so that's what this study aimed to do. There's only a few other studies that have looked at this and they've all been very small as well. So we don't recommend doing this yet, mm. um, but certainly the results that we're about to discuss are incredibly intriguing um, in, in regards to the opportunity to potentially utilize this in the neoadjuvant setting. That's great. So let's get into the, um, the primary and the secondary objectives of the NOW trial. Sure. So because, you know, obviously chemotherapy has been the standard of care for neoadjuvant for some time now, we did want to be very cautious in the way that, um, that we moved forward with this trial. And so the primary objective was actually a feasibility objective, and it is a small study, only 15 patients. And the way we defined feasibility was either that there was no unacceptable toxicity, meaning like a dose interruption for more than a few weeks or requiring multiple dose reductions, or of course, if there was evidence of disease progression during PARP inhibitor therapy, and that would be defined defined by resist, so measurable disease increase or a new disease, or even, you know, because again, we were being so careful, we were looking at increase in CA125 as well. Mm -hmm. So that was the primary endpoint was feasibility. 
secondary endpoint, very standard. So we wanted to look at efficacy, so objective response um, in those patients with measurable disease, and the proportion of patients that were able to go directly to surgery. So after just those two months of PARP inhibitor, could we move right to surgery without any chemotherapy? So we're very intrigued by that. And then, of course, progression-free survival, complete pathologic response rate, toxicity, um, not only of the PARP, but then also looking at toxicity of subsequent chemo. Um, and then um, my colleague, Dr. Larissa Meyer, also developed a really nice um, assessment of longitudinal symptom burden and PROs um, that will be discussed at a later date. That's great. And uh, Shannon, what, what were the inclusion criteria for this group of patients? Yeah, so we we wanted patients with advanced ovarian cancer or peritoneal fallopian tube that were deemed um, amenable for neoadjuvant therapy, but also would potentially be a surgical candidate down the line. So, so that was just the broad-based. And then they had to have a mutation. We initially were sticking to BRCA1 and 2, but mm -hmm. as, as this study was ongoing, some data came out around RAD51C, RAD51D, and PALB2 mutations. So those patients were also included, um, but the bulk of the patients did have BRCA mutation. And then other than that, you know, the standard, you know, uh, trial recommendation, ECOG performance status of zero to two, adequate organ and marrow function, able to take pills, you know, no GI, um, GI issues uh, that would preclude um, tolerating that. Fantastic. And now, what were some of the, the details on that study uh, schema? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we we wanted, again, to be careful. And of course, many of us are very used to giving three cycles of chemotherapy prior, you know, to getting imaging. But because we were doing something so novel, we even shrunk that down. So we did, um, patients were identified, thought to be reasonable for a new adjuvant, tested um, for BRCA. And that all happened the first day they came to clinic, essentially. Uh, and then we had to get rapid germline testing to be able to avoid having the patients wait, you know, twiddling their thumbs, waiting to determine if they could go on um, study. Once they were identified to have either the BRCA or, or one of the other relevant germline mutations, then they received two cycles of, um, of elaborate as a single agent. Um, they were at the at the baseline, we did get tissue because the molecular studies are going to be really critical here, as well as the CA125. And then at one month, they were evaluated per usual with just basic labs as well as CA125. And then at two months had um, their scans and we determined if they were appropriate to move right to surgery or if they had benefit, but not enough to, to warrant surgery, they would get chemo. And then, of course, if there was any evidence of progression of disease, they would go to chemotherapy. And whether or not they got surgery or chemo, we did get more tissue after that two months of a lap or began to understand what impact um, the PARP is having on the, the tumor and also to potentially tease out who got the most benefit. Um, after surgery, they can get, they could, they were treated per the um, physician and patient choice, generally chemotherapy was what was given. Although towards the end, as we see the data, you'll see that some patients um, chose to not get any chemotherapy and to just go to a PARP inhibitor or just have shorter amounts of chemotherapy. So, but we left that very much open. We did not mandate kind of what needed to be done um, after the completion of the surgery. Wow. Uh, very interesting. And uh, before we get into the results, uh, Shannon, anything you want to highlight about the statistical design of the study? Sure. I think, again, you know, this was a feasibility um, 
a feasibility study and we set that we wanted to see feasibility in at least 80% of patients. And so we had a very aggressive because we're, we didn't want to hurt patients, right? That's the bottom line. We don't want to negatively impact a group of patients that potentially can get to be disease free, maybe not cured, but definitely can get to be disease free. Um, and so that's that was our, our feasibility rate. We used a Bayesian design, so an adaptive design um, called a BOP2 that was designed by one of our collaborators, Ying Yuan, um, allowing to basically, it was a two-stage design. So at, 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 after about six patients were enrolled, we did an analysis to ensure that we weren't again, seeing a de detriment. And then we were able to enroll the, the rest of the patients. And we determined that it would be feasible if we could get 11 patients that could receive the PARP inhibitor without unacceptable toxicity or disease progression. Excellent. So what were the results of the NALP trial? So we, um, you know, I think it's important to hear kind of just the screening to, we, we enrolled 64 patients and of those 51 actually went ahead with germline testing. And then we identified mutations in 20 patients, but 15 were treated. And I think it's interesting because there were some patients that actually, once they got through it all, decided not to go on the PARP inhibitor. They were nervous about not getting chemo. Sure. And then a few patients that ultimately their labs were out of range and things like that. Um, and it was a very representative population. We actually had 27% um, that were um, Black or, or um, Hispanic, um, Latina. And so we we're very happy about kind of our rep underrepresented minority numbers, um, with hopefully this being a representative population. The bulk of patients had BRCA mutations, but we did have one uh, patient with RAD51C and one with PALB2. Um, but the bottom line is we met our primary endpoint. It was feasible. Actually, all 15 patients were able to receive two cycles of um, the elaborate without unacceptable toxicity or disease progression. And um, the majority of patients were able to go right to surgery. So 86% or 13 patients did not require any chemotherapy prior to surgery. So that was really exciting to us. And in fact, um, one of the patients ultimately never went to surgery. Her performance status never really she was kind of on the borderline. She was in her 80s. Questionable. I won't call out the physician that put her on, but probably a little borderline. <laughs> um, and she never did go to surgery, but she did have a really long uh, progression-free survival. So, um, so you know, no harm, no foul. Um, that's, and then, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I just add, you know, of the patients that went to surgery, 86% um, had a uh, no gross residual disease resection. So really exactly what we, you know, what we want for our patients when we, when we go to surgery. And um, one patient actually had a pathologic CR after just two months of PARP. Wow. I mean, that, that's uh, really very impressive. So many patients over 80% going to surgery uh, without chemotherapy up front. That, that's really impacting. Um, so now, uh, Shannon, we're going to get into some of the questions. These could be some, sometimes uh, the harder questions uh, from our fellows in the journal. Uh, this first question from Jennifer Davis Oliveira in uh, the UK. And she, uh, she asked, uh, you split demographic information by race and ethnicity. Uh, I'm curious as to why you did this and if this is a, an important distinction, distinction for your research and why. Yeah, you know, that's something that the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, has been asking us to do, to pull out the uh, patient population that, you know, race being white, black, Asian, other, and, you know, because 
they do see some overlap between race ethnicity where, you know, some patients that are um, Hispanic or Latina will identify with white race and some will identify with black race or other. And so that's, I think, their way of just kind of trying to tease out grain more granularly. Um, we have a long way to go with race, obviously, like Asian as a whole is ridiculous. It's too broad, right? I mean, East Asian, South, it's just, so there's a lot more that can be done here, but this, we were just kind of following the NCI on this one. Okay. Um, another question from Jennifer as well. Uh, she asked, you focus on BRCA mutated ovarian cancer in this study. Do you think the inclusion of other hereditary ovarian cancers will also show similar results? I think we have to be careful here. What we're learning is not all germline mutations are created equal in regards to at least response to PARP inhibitors. We still might be similar in regards to risk of development of cancer, but it does seem that just kind of broadly, including things like ATM or ATR, that hasn't really been associated with benefit from PARP, not only in um, ovarian cancer, but across other solid tumors like prostate cancer. Um, so it, it's not all created equal, but to Jennifer's point, we did, um, as we were moving forward with the study, allow RAD51D on, allow PALB2 on because of the data that we're evolving and showing that those patients can potentially gain benefit. So I think we just need to be really smart about, you know, who we offered, potentially offer this to, because we don't, again, we don't want to hurt patients and we want to maximize the group um, that's going to benefit. Yeah. Uh, these two questions come from Julie Bonaldo in Milan, Italy. Uh, first question is, could the neoadjuvant treatment with a PARP inhibitor induce an early development of resistance to PARP during the maintenance therapy? And do you identify predictive factors for treatment response? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the worry, right? About if if we give it earlier, will we see more resistance? We're hoping for more benefit and less resistance, but that's why we'll we'll be following these patients throughout um, their treatment course to to ensure that this is not a detrimental effect. And I actually, when when I presented these data at SGO, Katie Moore got up and asked me the hardest question, where you know, are because we're doing it in bulky tumors, do we have a bigger chance of what one of those two, one of the tumor cells or, or, or what have you developing resistance, right? And would it be better to kind of debulk the tumor with chemo, like a cycle or two, and then move to PARP? And I, I, I do think it's a very thought-provoking question. Um, you know, we will have the opportunity to look at tissue markers and specifically, you know, since most people responded, we have, we'll have to look at the more long-term. So what the patients that had a really nice long progression-free survival, as opposed to those who maybe had a shorter progression-free survival, I think that'll be some of the information that will be really helpful to determine what molecularly might be going on. And I should mention that we looked, um, we are going to look at ctDNA and specifically look at BRCA reversions, which are known to be one of the primary mechanisms of PARP resistance and see if there's early development of, um, of reversion mutations that could potentially cause a problem down the line. Really interesting. Yeah. The next question from Julio is, uh, do you have any data regarding chemotherapy response scores at interval tumor reductive surgery? And uh, he proposes a ideal scenario where patients undergo treatment with neoadjuvant PARP followed by minimally invasive surgery at the interval setting. What are your thoughts on that? I love this idea. Yeah. You know, so 
that's like the chemo response score. I don't have those data, but we are working with one of our pathology collaborators to collect that. So I think we hopefully will be able to, to look at that um, in, in subsequent assessments of this trial. Um, you know, I, as I was I was hearing the question, I thought to myself, yeah, I think maybe one or two, maybe one of these patients went on Lance, I feel like, and I need to go mm-hmm. check that because um, we, you know, Dr. Rauhein and I were collaborating on, you know, we obviously, we have a limited number of patients with new ovarian cancer. And so making sure that patients were offered every single trial along the way. But I, I love the idea of, of a PARP inhibitor induction followed by minimally invasive surgery. I mean, wow, what an impact on quality of life and adverse events that would be. Exactly. Uh, so this uh, next two questions come from uh, Andrea Rosati in Rome, Italy. Um, and his first question is, how was the initial uh, evaluation for neoadjuvant chemotherapy decided? Was it based on tumor burden assessed by imaging or by diagnostic uh, laparoscopy? And when you had residual disease at interval cell reduction, where was it that it was left? Yeah. Yeah. This is all like, these are great questions because they're helping me make sure that I do all the right secondary analyses as we're kind of putting this paper together. Um, but you know, the, the, the bottom line is, um, we do, we had a group of patients, some did go through laparoscopy and some were just based on imaging. So it's, I think when I looked at the data it was about 50, 50, or maybe even like 60% with imaging and, and 40% laparoscopy. So that will be presented. Um, but you know, we did that based on our own um, algorithm that we use at our institution. The you know, as far as the disease distribution, I think it's a great um, a, a great point and something we're looking at. And I will note one of the patients that didn't go right to surgery, um, who ultimately got chemotherapy. It was a little unclear if her disease was unresectable or not, and and the the physician got a little nervous, understandably, and and gave chemo. Later, though, we started realizing that the imaging wasn't um, it wasn't as consistent with what we were finding at the time of surgery, and so we got much more aggressive going to surgery right away um, as we became more comfortable that this was working, that we felt like we were seeing patients that were having benefit. And, you know, for example, the patient with a pathologic complete response, she had liver lesions on her scan and they were positive. They were biopsy positive um, prior to the PARP, but post they were just treated disease with no active disease. And so once that happened, then we became a little bit more confident, like, okay, let's, let's go for it. Let's do a scope at the least, you know, see if we can resect the disease and, and, you know, lean more towards performing that tumor reductive surgery after, after immediately after PARP. Fantastic. Wow. Um, his next question, and it kind of goes back to the point of PARP resistance. And he was just asking, do you have any information in this study about PARP resistant mechanisms in this population? The answer is we will. Um, we have just, we're transferring specimens and starting analyses. Um, and we plan to do a pretty deep dive of um, assessment, not only of, um, of the genes, but also RNA um, and protein and immune environment. So there's a pretty um, aggressive, I would say, or ambitious um, translational plan for these tissues. I, I will note though that, and I don't wanna say unfortunately, because that's not it's not unfortunate that there are a proportion of patients that we don't have tissue, cancer tissue post-op because there was just not enough cancer. And you know, the the specimens that were removed basically had treated disease with very little cancer cells. So there will be some limitations in, um, in how many 
uh, specimens we have and how many comparisons we can do. Um, but I think that's obviously a great result for a patient to have yeah. not enough active cancer to test. So, um, so yes, we intend to look at CCNE1 for sure. That's something that um, has been very clear uh, to be associated with resistance to PARP. So we'll we'll be exploring that definitely. Perfect. Yeah, that's an, a great lead into the next question from Anissa Mburu in Kenya. She asked, with the successful results of this trial, then are we looking at de-escalation of post-surgery chemotherapy? And it sounds like you know some of your patients didn't have chemotherapy after. Yeah, we, you know, when we looked at the numbers of kind of <laughs> what people got adjuvantly, you know, in the beginning, there was definitely a lot of six cycles of paclitaxel and carboplatin post the um, post-surgery. But as people, again, got more comfortable, we, we saw like, I think three or four patients had three cycles of chemo and then went to PARP and then three patients never got chemo. They're on PARP inhibitor right now. So to be determined, um, one of and one of those, understandably so, is the woman that had the pathologic complete response because she said, "Why would I get chemo if I've got no cancer?" Right. And I said, "I can't fight you." Right. So, and they understand. I mean, this is a vanguard group of patients. They're already doing something incredibly. You know, they've agreed to something that's so innovative. They're they just have that kind of mindset of early adoption. So. I, I do think that that it is intriguing. I think we still need to be very cautious and we're watching those patients that only got three cycles or only four or whatever um, and ensuring that, they, um, that they're safe, right? That we're not seeing early uh, progression. Okay. These next two questions from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, Ryan Khan. Uh, first question is, do you foresee the expansion of inclusion criteria to include all HRD patients? Is expedited HRD testing truly a possibility? So, you know, I'll talk about, we have an ongoing study um, called the OPAL study, um, which is sponsored by uh, GSK um, that we're enrolling on. And that does allow um, patients with HRD. Um, but the way to, there's no, to my knowledge at this point, there's no expedited HRD testing. Um, we do hope we'll see similar benefits to what we've seen with patients with germline, but that's of course something we want to explore. Um, so what we're doing in that study is actually giving a cycle of chemotherapy um, mm -hmm. while the patient's waiting. And that allows for kind of something to be happening while we're getting the germline testing, while we're getting that HRD testing. And they're able to turn it around in that window of time where the patient gets their first cycle. And then they're randomized to either continuing chemo or transitioning to um, PARP inhibitor. Great. So I think hopefully that'll answer that question. Yeah, this next question from Ryan is also an interesting question. And he asks, um, will this impact the duration of maintenance therapy later with PARP inhibitors? Will you change now if a patient is, has such a success story from neoadjuvant PARP, will you change the duration of treatment later? Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, what we've done with the, the couple of patients that went right to PARP is we kind of considered their months of PARP, you know, as each cycle. And then once we got to that kind of six cycle number, then we transitioned to um, the maintenance phase and we're giving the, you know, the two years there because we, again, didn't want to limit or really change, um, you know, what we could control. Uh, with that being said, I think there's a lot of interest in potentially reducing maintenance. There's there's some studies that have been discussed or ideas around studies have been discussed of potentially changing from, you know, two years to one year. Because when you look 
at the curves from like solo one, for example, the, it does seem like the biggest benefit is in that early time period. Mm -hmm. And there's more of a flattening of the curve later. And so do you really need, you know, that full two years, I think is up for, uh, is, is a good question. Um, but for now, we're doing it for the entire time point. Great. Um, these next two questions come from Teresa Pan in uh, Austria. Her first one is kind of like, you know, looking into the future and your crystal ball. And she says, uh, ultimately, when uh, all is said and done, what do you think is going to be the optimal number of neoadjuvant treatments with Olaparib in BRCA-mutated patients? Yeah, I mean, I love it like three to four cycles. I'd love to go to kind of a more standard neoadjuvant piece where, um, you know, where we give it that kind of adequate enough, adequate time. But with that being said, two was great. I mean, I was really am happy, but right. I do wonder if we had given a few more cycles, will we have even seen less residual disease, um, you know, and again, residual disease there before surgery, I, I think potentially because, you know, what we see with elaborate is it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving you keeps seeing shrinkage. Whereas with chemo, a lot of the times we kind of see a big, big shrinkage and then things kind of start to stabilize. So I, I do think that there's the potential that the PARP can keep having activity. So, you know, so I, I do think maybe like a three to four, but you know, I'm, I, I think we still need to, to explore a little bit more. I will say that in the OPAL study, we're doing three, okay, three cycles. And then uh, the next question from Teresa is, uh, is there any group of patients that you didn't include in this study, but you think mm -hmm. should have been or would potentially benefit in future studies looking at neoadjuvant PARP? Yeah, I'm intrigued by HRD. I definitely think that population could potentially benefit, but I don't, you know, what I don't know is will it be as profound? Would they need more or, or what? So I, I'm, I'm intrigued and I'm hopeful that our ongoing study will help us kind of tease that group out. Um, you know, and I, and I think that I'd love to see more patients with the other mutations, right? So the RAD51D, RAD51C, mm. PALB2, because we only, like I said, had one of each of those. Um, so I'd love to see higher numbers of those patients to, to really tease out, um, is there true benefit there as well? Fantastic. And Shannon, can we talk about the adverse events? What were some of the most common uh, issues that were seen in this study and uh, what percentage of patients had to have like modifications of therapy? Yeah. So it was, you know, the, as far as the actual adverse events that we saw was very much as expected for PARP, there was no new signals or anything special, but you know, the, the most common things were exactly what you would expect. So anemia, um, GI issues like constipation, um, nausea, abdominal pain, that type of thing. Um, so, so that was as expected. And, um, and in fact, most were actually early grade, the, um, the only high grade, uh, like grade three, four toxicities we saw were anemia. Um, one patient required a dose interruption because of the anemia. Um, it was, she was held for seven days and then had a dose reduction and then did well for the remainder of the, um, the two month period. And that was it. Okay. And then Shannon, what would you say are the limitations of your study? It's small, right? I mean, it's a really small, very select population. You know, we were very careful <laughs> for who we put on there. And, um, and so of course that's a limitation. And then of course, you know, the, just the feasibility of getting the testing done in a timely fashion, it's hard, right? To, 
to sometimes, especially out in the community, to, to get the genetic counseling and the genetic testing done very quickly. So those types of things need to be kind of considered as we move this type of strategy forward. Um, and then, you know, we've limited follow-up so far, right? So we, you know, we, um, we still have to watch these patients for a longer period of time and make sure that there's no uh, undue uh, harm. Well, great. I uh, I know that obviously you have to get on to your next presentation or your your responsibilities at ASCO. So one last question: um, Are there what what are the plans moving forward for future studies? You mentioned another study. Uh, what what else is looking exciting for PARP inhibitor in the neoadjuvant setting? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm excited about our ongoing study. Um, I'm hopeful we'll get that enrolled over the next year and get some answers. And and it's nice because it has a comparison between. Um, the chemo and the PARP. But I think also there are kind of newer, um, more selective PARPs coming down the pipe. So, you know, AstraZeneca has a, a, a PARP1 selective tumor that our um, agent that Dr. Yap presented some of the data for at um, AACR. And it looks potentially like there's great activity and, and the toxicity profile is better. So that may be um, a really nice strategy to move, you know, into the neoadjuvant setting. And then of course, I'm just intrigued about thinking about other combinations for the patients that don't have BRCA mutations. And so thinking of other strategies that we potentially could, you know, move away from chemotherapy and, and focus more on targeted strategies that are focused based on the patient's tumor. Be a really cool way to go. Shannon Weston, thank you so, so much. As always, such a pleasure speaking with you. It's great to see you on the Zoom platform as well. And uh, I always learn so much from you. Um, thank you for what you've done for G1 Oncology and, and all of the work that you continue to do to advance uh, the, the, the cure for women's cancers. Thank you. Well, it was great to be with you and it's good to see you. Um, <laughs> we have to meet in person soon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, well, enjoy the rest of the ASCO meeting and enjoy Chicago. <laughs> All right, take care. Bye.